All right, back in Matthew's Gospel, we're right near the very end. We're in Matthew 28, but we're not quite at the end, but we're almost there. It's been a long time we've been in this Gospel together. Uh, we're going to start in John's Gospel today, and then kind of work to Luke, and then to our text in Matthew this morning. So you might want to turn to John first, okay? So let's get ready. One thing I want you to think about is how um, defeated the disciples were after the crucifixion of Jesus. It's pretty hard to exaggerate how down they were. They had not only lost their master and their friend, but their future in the world. They'd invested everything with Jesus, more than just their lives, their souls, their hearts. They were all invested in him, and when he was gone, they were just lost. So despite the opposition and the hard work that they had done for three and a half years with Jesus, life was good. Life was good with them. It was all forward-looking. He was so full of love, and he was such a magnificent source of unending wisdom that when he was gone, they were just shattered. They staked everything on Jesus, and he was dead, very dead. I mean, John saw it all and would have told them the spear thrust up into his chest cavity there. He was gone. Three years of ministry, miracles, preaching tours, learning, growing, all in the name of and in anticipation of the coming kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, with Jesus reigning over the world. And it was done, gone, finished on a cross of wood. The traitor, Judas, succeeded. Jesus' enemies were triumphant that they'd gotten him dead. All the disciples' hopes were dashed. Not only that, they were personal failures. Um, they slept while he was praying. When he was arrested, they fled, and then they hid. So there must have been not only just being down from what happened and losing Jesus, but their own guilt, recriminations, uh, a defeat uh, of their own character. So the lives of the apostles were very up in the air, untethered to anything in the world that mattered to them anymore. They were very down. Their foundation was gone. But then these ladies came, all excited, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and the other ladies, and they're all excited about having seen Jesus. And it was very hard for the apostles to believe them. Now, we do know that Mary Magdalene was the one that first found the empty tomb, and she ran to tell Peter and John, and they, they came themselves to see the tomb. They ran, in fact, and John records this in John chapter 20, or right at the beginning there in verse 2. says, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's always John when it says that. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter. So John he used to be on track in high school. He ran faster than Peter, and they came to the tomb first and stooped. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. So John gets there, and he looks in, and he can see that. But he did not go in. Then verse 6, and so Simon Peter came also following him. He just goes right past him into the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up and placed by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So the way Peter and John found the wrappings is pretty significant, it's very telling. That's why John describes so carefully what he saw. If the body had been stolen, they would not have taken the time to unwrap the body and neatly place the head covering to the side. Jesus must have done that himself. So he's not only the savior of mankind, he's a very tidy person. So at this point, there is um, one apostle we have that's starting to believe that Jesus may physically have risen from the dead and that's that the testimony of Mary is true and that's John. So the body isn't there, it's gone. But the wrappings are still there, and that suggested to John in his mind, well, he wasn't stolen. Maybe it's true. Maybe what Mary um, and these other ladies were going to say is, is true. So for John, the lights are starting to come on. But last week we saw that when the women, including Mary Magdalene, ran to the apostles as a group and uh, with the news of having seen Jesus and heard Jesus and touched Jesus, the apostles thought it was nonsense. Luke 24.10 is very explicit. It says, There were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them. They were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So they were not the only witnesses of the resurrection because they weren't enough to convince them. So Jesus does something else on that Sunday. It turns out, Jesus appeared to and walked with two men, one of whose names was Cleopas, to Emmaus, which is a town about seven miles away from Jerusalem. But they don't know it's Jesus. There's, for some reason, he kept them from knowing who he was. And I won't spend a lot of time there today, but I do want to read this account. It's in Luke 24, starting at verse 13, and, and it's a significant story. It's, it's told in quite a bit of detail. So they're walking along, and this man joins them, asking about what they're talking about. And they say, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was the, a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, that's Peter and John, and found it exactly as the women had also said. But him they did not see. So what these two men describe conforms very well with what the other Gospels are all telling us, including Peter and John's visit to the tomb and John there. But you also get a really good sense of what some of Jesus' followers thought about the testimony of the women. So they said they amazed us. So they didn't necessarily think that they were lying or, or hysterical women or something like that. But, um, but they thought maybe they'd seen some kind of vision. He says... They had also seen a vision of angels that he was alive. So um, they saw the angel and, and they heard his voice. And so they're sort of seeing it as a spiritual, uniquely spiritual experience without really any concrete reality behind it. But then there was the empty tomb. 
So maybe God is trying to say something there. So Jesus speaks up at that point when they're saying all of this uh, in Luke 24, 25, and he says, Oh, foolish men who are slow of heart to believe in all the things the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now, every Bible student and theologian that I know worth his salt would give their right arm to be in on that conversation, <laughs> to hear Jesus explain all of that. And they're excited. So they invite him home for dinner. And he accepts, and then the text says in verse 30 that he took their bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, was that a special miracle or did something else go on there? They just finally realized it, they weren't paying attention or whatever? We don't know, but he, it says he vanished from their sight. So he just disappeared as soon as they noticed who he was. So they're thinking, hey, it's Jesus, and then he's gone. And do you know what they say? That was really weird. No, that's not what they say. This is what they said. Verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So they have some very sweet thoughts in their minds as they get ready for bed that night and go to sleep. Except that's not what they do. They don't go to sleep. They, they immediately get up and they walk all the way back to Jerusalem, probably at a pretty fast clip, enough to seven miles again, back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles what had happened and all the other people, all the other disciples gathered together there. So they turn right around. And when they get there, verse 33, it says, when they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, which would be the ladies and other disciples, like they were other disciples that were part of that group and heard the women. So um, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So it's an amazing experience that they had. Everything they say confirms what the women said. Jesus is risen. So John has the story of Mary fetching Peter and John and going to the tomb. Luke has the story of these two men on the road to Emmaus meeting Jesus. And you know what Matthew has in Matthew's gospel, which we're studying today? He has none of that. None of it. Matthew does not record anything about the apostles seeing Jesus in Jerusalem or the women even telling the apostles what they saw. He does record their experience with Jesus and how Jesus met them on the way to the apostles and they worshiped him, they fell at his feet, they touched him, they um, honored him. So they he definitely confirms the resurrection. So he has Jesus plainly risen and he has the women seeing him and worshiping him and touching him. So he's risen indeed. But Matthew doesn't cover any of the experience of the apostles with Jesus in Jerusalem like Luke and John do. Instead, Matthew tells us something that the other Gospels don't. And that is what happened to the Roman guards who were supposed to be keeping the tomb from being opened for three days. So there's a big question that brings up. Why does Matthew tell this story and not the other stories? Why does he tell the guards' story? Because they didn't actually see Jesus. They did see an angel but they didn't see Jesus. So what purpose does it serve to 
focus on that? Well, you have to think about who Matthew's writing his gospel to. Who's his target audience? Well, it's the Jews. It's his brethren, you know, his brother Israelites. Everything about Matthew's gospel tells us it was an entirely intended for the Jewish audience. And that's who he's writing to. Of course, other people can benefit from it, but that was his audience, his people. There are even early sources that say that Matthew wrote originally in the language of the Jewish people, Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever they were speaking at that time. And then later it was translated into Greek. We don't know that for a fact, and there's no manuscript evidence of that, but that is what is said. And certainly it can tell from the gospel itself it was written to the Jews. Matthew quotes the Old Testament far more he assumes knowledge of things the other Gospels will say, and that means, and this is the custom of, but Matthew doesn't have to do that because he's writing to the people that already know all that stuff. So he tells um, the story of the guards because that was a uniquely important issue to a Jewish audience. So his purpose is more apologetic, which means he's defending the truth that Jesus was risen. He has to counter what the Jewish leaders told the people, that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. That was the word that went out. So he tells how that story was invented. So, you know, modern skeptics, they don't often claim that the disciples stole the body because it's pretty irrational. But some do claim that Jesus survived the crucifixion. Now, no one in the ancient world claimed that Jesus survived the crucifixion. I mean, nobody. You know why? Because people who lived in that time knew what crucifixion was, they'd seen it, and they knew that nobody survived it. I mean, I suppose technically you could have pulled out the nails and had somebody survive it, but they would have been a cripple for life if they had. But there's no record of anybody surviving a crucifixion anywhere. So um, the explanation offered by the enemies of Christ, claimed that the body was stolen, not that he survived. Nobody said that back then. But they claimed he was stolen while the guards were asleep. That was the message. So Matthew tells what really happened with the guards. Remember, this angel appeared, and there's an earthquake, and he rolls the giant stone away from the tomb and sets it down, and he sits on it. And it says in Matthew um, 28.4, the guards became like dead men. Now, they didn't die. They experienced angel shock, which is kind of like shell shock when you encounter a glorious angel. We call it angel shock. Actually, I just made that up. But that they, they fell dead away. They were terrified or horrified or whatever. So Matthew 28, 11 says, now while they were on their way to Galilee, so he's talking about the disciples there, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, that's pretty interesting, too. Where do they go? To the chief priests. Why would they go to the chief priests? Well, the guards don't want to get in trouble. And the chief priests, very logically, would be the only people with clout who also would not want the truth out. So they've got those two things going with the priests in their mind. And they're right. The priests won't want the truth out that this angel picked up a stone and rolled it away. And they have enough clout to maybe protect us. So that's what they're thinking. So um, why would the guards get in trouble? Because they were guarding a sealed tomb and they had orders to do that. So they had orders to go and seal this tomb and guard it. And now the seals are broken and the stone is gone and they're not wounded. Uh, what, what kind of fight did they put up, right? How did they, who did they stop or try to stop? So... 
what are they going to say when when they go back to the fortress of Antonia and the centurion comes, you know, and says, "So what? What happened out there, boys? Everything okay?" Well, you see, sir, the, this angel came down. How's he going to react to that? Right, right. Were you guys drinking as well as sleeping? Or what? What are you trying to tell me here? I mean, they're taking a big chance with that kind of a story. So look what happens when they go to the priest. Matthew tells us, verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, as is to this day. So when Matthew wrote, maybe 15, 20 years after the fact, this story is still going around amongst the Jewish community that the body was stolen. So if any Christian is preaching Jesus or comes up with that, the story in the community is, and the leaders and the rabbis would say, oh, the disciples stole the body. He didn't rise from the dead. Because somebody would say, well, where was it? Well, they stole it. So that was the argument. That was the agreed-on story, and it would be kept from the governor. That was the plan. Now, the biggest inducement to add to that was a lot of cash, uh, mega denarii, you could call it. And um, they would get that for spreading this false story. And Roman soldiers didn't get paid a whole lot, so if you offer them a lot of money, sure, why not? Okay, we'll tell that story. But they, they do need something else, and that's personal security. They need protection. Because they're going to get in a lot of trouble if, they, if the story goes out that they were asleep on duty. So they will tell people in town that the, the body was stolen by the disciples while they were sleeping. They aren't planning to tell their superiors. They'll just kind of come home from a long night's journey on guard duty and act like everything was fine. But what if the story does make it back to the commanders or the governor that they were sleeping on duty? I mean, that literally could mean their death. So it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. Roman military discipline was very severe. And there were about 10 or 12 things that you just couldn't do as a Roman soldier or you would likely be put to death for, for doing it. Sleeping on duty, that's one of those things. Sleeping on watch, that was one of those things. They, they kind of tended to like run you through the gauntlet with big cudgels and beat you to death. That was usually the way. There's a famous story of a guard who fell asleep on duty being thrown off a cliff. I mean, it wasn't a good end for you if you've slept on duty. So to get that story going around, um, the money really helped. But they also needed that protection. So uh, the chief priest promised to fix things with Pontius Pilate if the governor finds out what they did. They don't say how they would do that, but it wouldn't be very hard. If, if Pilate heard that his guards were asleep on watch, the chief priest could simply tell him, hey, we made up the story to suppress the Jesus movement because it's starting to rise again and there's a story that he rose from the dead. So we, we asked them to tell that story and they did that for us. So they didn't, they didn't sleep, they're okay, they did fine, they just did that. It actually helps us all because it's going to keep the Christian thing suppressed. So we asked the guards to lie about it. Pilate probably would not be upset about that because the soldiers did not fail in their duty according to the chief priest story, and the guard really was given at Pilate's request for the chief priest, so if it's, it's their business, 
kind of how they want to deal with it. It was for them, and there's no Roman interests involved at that point. So it was all for the chief priest's sake. So the priests had already proven um, that they could bend Pilate to their will. They did that on Sunday, I mean on Friday morning. Um, and there could have been a little financial inducement for Pilate as well. But they promised the guards that they would not be in trouble, and apparently they kept that promise. So the ancient story, the story told by those who were there at the time, was not that Jesus survived. Many people saw him die. Many people, that whole crowd watched that spear get thrust up into his chest cavity there. So, but, but the story was that his corpse was stolen. That was it. So Matthew's explained the story's origin because it was still circulating when he wrote. And frankly, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The, the truth makes the most sense. If Jesus' body was stolen, it had to have been stolen either by his friends, like the disciples, or his enemies. Could it have been his friends? That's a legitimate question to ask. Well, I don't think so. Uh, we already talked about how lost and despondent the apostles were, despairing. Other people had to go tend to Jesus' body because they wouldn't do it. They were hiding. They would have had to have been masterful deceivers, and they'd have to maintain this fictional story that Jesus had risen in the face of incredible opposition. Is it likely they decided on Sunday to boldly change the world with a big lie? just two days after the master had died. I mean, they went from fearful, timid, grieving disciples of the purest man they ever knew and to suddenly become wholesale charlatans and deceivers and con artists to proclaim him risen. Is, is that likely? Would one of the apostles like Philip say something like, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll start preaching that we all saw him risen and we'll give our lives to be hunted like dogs so we can start this new religion. Guys, th this would work. And, but now, nobody can give it up. I mean, we, we have to all agree. Nobody can deny the story. We have to all stay together on this big thing that we, even though we're caught and tortured for it, we all have to agree. I think the other disciple could say, we're going to do what? We're going to do what? Uh, no. So that whole construct is, is pretty foolish. There's really not even a psychological category to explain that kind of behavior. Um, that wouldn't have happened. There are kooky religious people in the world that make up stuff, but the disciples of Jesus were consistently men of integrity, and, and they taught absolute truthfulness, and Jesus was their model. So they would not have done that, even for him uh, in some way. So there are plenty of religious charlatans out in the world, but they do it for money. The apostles could only expect and receive, because Jesus told them the world would hate them, and that's exactly what happened. They only received persecution. They never made money off of Jesus. So they gained nothing in this world. And as I said last time, if, if they wanted to continue Jesus' work, their hope was in Messiah's kingdom, not teaching his morality or brotherly love, or something like that. They didn't go out into the world to teach a philosophy. They weren't hippies, they weren't philosophers, or anything like that. They were pretty rugged men who proclaimed the risen Christ. That consistently was their message. It wasn't about Jesus teaching or morality. That was part of it, but that wasn't the main thing. What they said every time they preached was that Jesus was risen from the dead, and that we are accountable to him, and that he will judge the world and you need to repent. That's what they preach. 
So it wasn't Jesus is great. It was Jesus is coming again, and you need to be ready for him. So without a risen Christ, they would not have gone forward. They would not have been world changers. The idea that they stole his body just doesn't fit the facts. And it doesn't fit with human nature, considering what they'd been through and where they were when all of this happened. Okay, well, if Jesus' um, friends didn't steal the body, did his enemies steal the body? Well, why would they do that? I mean, I can't even think of a reason why, why his enemies would have stolen the body. What would they gain? They wanted to prevent the belief in his resurrection, not establish it. So I can't think of any reasons. But if they did do that, if they did steal it, then when the Jesus movement grew and threatened their authority and all of that, all they had to do was produce the body and say what happened. And they never did that. Here it is, folks. We've had him on ice for a while, but here's Jesus. You can check out the wounds right there. Oh, but they didn't. That never happened. So the, only the story that the disciples stole the body was what, running around. And that just doesn't fit. That just couldn't have happened. So... Those who knew, those who were there knew that Jesus' body was buried in Joseph's tomb, and they knew his body left the tomb early on Sunday morning. But no one reasonably could have taken it. So what happened? He rose from the dead. That's what happened. And that changed the disciples dramatically. It was Jesus alive. So the hard evidence is the eyewitness testimony to that. That's what we have. That, that of, and that testimony was from people whose lives had completely changed by his appearing in a glorified but physical body. He repeatedly interacted with the disciples in a physical way. And he did that on purpose to produce certainty. When they first saw him, what did they think? It's a spirit. He's a ghost. So he had them touch him. He ate in front of them. He did things that were physical so they would know that's not the case. He needed to make his resurrection clear to the disciples. Frankly, he had to do it to get them to that pre-planned meeting in Galilee. They weren't going to go. They didn't believe the women. And uh, they didn't believe the guys on Emmaus either. They weren't sure. So they weren't planning to go. So Jesus appeared to them. Remember, it had been planned before Jesus' death to meet in Galilee after the resurrection. In Matthew 26, verse 31, and this was right after the um, Last Supper. They're walking towards Mount, the Mount of Olives. They're going out and they have this conversation. Matthew 26, 31, it said, Jesus said to them, you'll remember this if you've been with us, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, that's Matthew 26, 33, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And then the angel at the tomb on Sunday morning confirmed this plan and told the women to remind the apostles, go quickly, 28, 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. And then Jesus meets the women even before they get to the disciples, and he tells them the same thing. 28 verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So it's triple enforced, this idea, putting it to the apostles, that they're supposed to go after the resurrection to Galilee and meet Jesus there. 
Okay, now in verse 16 of Matthew 28, we learn that the place for this meeting had already been selected by Jesus as well. And it's a particular mountain. It doesn't mention which one, but, but they knew because that was part of their conversation. It's not recorded. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So when they were having that conversation, he had told them where. It just didn't end up in Scripture. So the 11 go off to Galilee, to the meeting. Then the next verse, verse 17, we're just there. And again, Matthew, on the resurrection issues, really compresses the stories. He only gives us highlights, key highlights, but just highlights, because he really wants to focus on that, the guard story. That's kind of important to for his people to know what really happened there. So, in verse 17, it says, um, they're there all of a sudden, and it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Well, he's right at the end of the gospel, and he says some were doubtful. That That's an unexpected word there. Now, it's true that word can be translated, they were hesitant or something like that, but doubtful is a legitimate translation for that. That's a bit of a surprise that he would add that in there somewhere doubtful but he doesn't explain it at all what he means or who is doubtful or doubtful of what um, did the doubt persist are we even talking about the 11 apostles with regard to this doubt <clears throat> Matthew is so brief right here um, you know if I was reading this and Matthew was there and said hey would you read this for me I'd say you need to add a little bit more right here but maybe he was at the end of the scroll. I don't know. But he had his purposes. Um, it's a little bit frustrating. But we have the other Gospels that fill in all the blanks there. So we have to see things like this that we don't have all the details in, in the light of other scriptures, which do give us the details. And fortunately, we have all that. So we know that Jesus persuaded the apostles in a very profound way that he had risen in Jerusalem before they ever went to Galilee. They were persuaded. Uh, he personally visited them. He even ate in their presence. He even came back a second time when Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, Thomas the doubter, um, said uh, he, he didn't believe the women. He didn't believe the guys from the road to Emmaus. He didn't even believe the apostles. So Thomas was, I got to see it. I got to see it. I got to touch him. I got to put my hand in the wounds personally. I, you know, Mr. Uh, guy from Missouri there. So he didn't believe anything. So Jesus comes again and has Thomas touch him and put his hands there. So they were absolutely, the apostles were convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. So what is this doubt in Galilee? Who's doubting and what's going on there? Well, I think our answer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you might want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's list of the resurrection appearances of Christ. The whole chapter is about resurrection, both Christ's resurrection and how it how we'll be resurrected in him. So Paul gives this list of appearances of Christ, and then he talks about himself being the last of all. And many believe this was actually a little church creed, a creedal formula that was recited very, very early in church history to memorize and recite the resurrection appearances because the resurrection is the heart of our faith. It's the most important thing. So, 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 52, within 20 years of the resurrection. You know, if you think about just from our frame of reference, it would have been as long ago, almost exactly as long ago as 9-11 happened to us. So, not that long ago, well within memory, 
So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says, I delivered to you, to the Corinthians, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See now that sounds like a creed. And then it says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he talks about himself. So we don't know the details of the appearance to Peter, but Luke does mention it briefly in Luke 24, 34. And then next Paul says, then to the twelve, that that happened twice, we know, once without Thomas and once with Thomas. And then third, he says in verse six, notice in verse six, he says, after that, after that. So those are the Jerusalem appearances. After that, and this must be the Galilee resurrection rally. It doesn't say that, but that, it's almost got to be that, that Jesus had planned already before his death. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So there are a lot of people there. Most of them were still alive when Paul was writing, though a few have passed away. They've fallen asleep. They've died. Just like any 500 people we might pick out of America who watched the World Trade Center go down on television, some of those people would have died, but most of them would still be alive today. So I believe Matthew 28, 17 is likely referring to the opening moments of this great meeting of more than 500 of Jesus' disciples. So when they saw him, verse 17 says, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. So it was hard for some of the 500 to believe that he was really Jesus resurrected, just as it had been hard for the apostles to believe until Jesus touched them, let them touch him, and ate in front of them and did all of that. He, um, he had to prove it to them even after they saw him, right? So notice how verse 18 begins. It says, right after that, it says, some were doubtful. Then it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them. That strongly suggests that when they first saw him, he was distant because he has to move up close enough to speak to them. So Jesus first appeared at this event at a distance, and he approaches the crowd to speak to them. We can assume then that he stayed and interacted with everyone until they too were all convinced. But at the beginning of that, they were doubtful. Um, they must have been come, become convinced because, because Paul is using them as witnesses of the resurrection. He says 500 people saw, saw them. So um, Paul can mention them 20 years later as reliable witnesses. So this doubting and the apostles doubting earlier and Thomas's doubting even after that, they all tell us that these people were not all psychologically hyped up to see something and just believe something that wasn't even real because they wanted it to happen so bad. They were not ready to do that. They were skeptical, just like any people would be. They had to be convinced, and they were convinced. So they dedicated their lives to the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus and his glory. Jesus was victorious over death. That's the message. And most of them lost their lives in very cruel ways to affirm that their belief that Jesus was resurrected. You know, when they start torturing you, that's the time to say you made it up. Hey, you know, it was just an idea we had. We thought we'd start something up, but they never did. Nobody denied it. So you can believe as well, based on their eyewitness testimony sealed with their blood. You don't have to believe it blindly. This is... Evidence, testimony, eyewitness testimony is evidence. 
and it was life-changing for them, and it can be for you as well. They sealed their testimony in blood. Never forget that. In John's Gospel, Doubting Thomas, that second meeting when Jesus appears to the apostles, he sees Jesus physically, and he does touch him. He physically touches where the wounds were to see that that was true, that his resurrected body was in a phantom. He was really there, physically there. And when Thomas finally does that, his heart is bursting, and he cries out, my Lord and my God. He worships Jesus as his God. That is where the resurrection brings us, to that place where we confess Christ as the Lord, our God, our Creator, our Redeemer. And after Thomas's confession, John the disciple writes this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Put your faith in Jesus. It's really true. It happened. The greatest man that ever lived was God in human flesh, and he gave his life for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. He rose from the dead to prove that that really did happen and that he is who he said he was and all of the claims about him are true and that your sins really can be forgiven in him. So embrace that. Embrace him. Put your faith in Jesus. Find life. Okay, so Jesus is risen. All Matthew has left to do in his gospel is give us Jesus' final words, which are our marching orders. And that will be our topic for next time. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the clarity you give us on the resurrection. So many witnesses. We need Jesus as a risen Savior. We need much more than a teacher. We need a Savior. And you provided him. And you provided the proof in raising him up that we too, who belong to him, can live forever by his blood. Lord, we thank you for him. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for all those who have proclaimed it throughout the world, that we can embrace it for ourselves today. We thank you in his great name. Amen. All right. Spend some time with the Lord right now, just thanking him and glorifying him. We'll see you next time.